All right. Acts chapter 3. We finished Acts chapter 2 last week. Um, We talked um, a great deal about how in Acts chapter 2, the message that Peter was proclaiming was one of repentance and baptism. We talked a lot about that. We talked about how um, I ended on how it was the Lord's church that He was building. And we talked about 12 points, which was kind of crazy, but 12 points of what you need to be looking for in a good church. Um, And so what we're going to do now is we're going to move right into Acts chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses. We may get through all 10. Um, I I have half the points tonight, so that's good. Um, I won't have to rush through them so much. But here's here's what God's Word says in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful so he could beg for those entering the temple complex. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood, and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was one who, was, who, uh, who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. This is the first miracle, healing miracle, that we have recorded in the, in the church. Of Jesus Christ. If you look there at verse 1, we'll start there and we'll unpack these 10 verses as best we can over the next few minutes. But if you look at verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer. You know that Peter and John continued to be Jews after Jesus died, right? And they continued to be Jews after Jesus was raised from the grave, right? And they continued to be Jews after Jesus had ascended into heaven, right? You guys realize that the New Testament was being written um, many, many years later. They, they didn't have the New Testament that we have. They had their, 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 um, their reference point to religion, their reference point on how they're supposed to live their lives was from recollection of what Jesus had spoken to them directly and the Old Testament, the lifestyle that they had learned to live their entire lives. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't see that they were going up to the temple complex and just say, oh, they were, you know, that, that doesn't mean anything. That, that really does mean something. One, I see that they were together. Now, I, I'm probably reading a little into it, but I, I just want to kind of draw out the, the principle in that they went to church together. Friends, ministry buddies, partners, 
co-witnesses to what God was doing in the world around them. They were together when they went to church. Just kind of reinforcing with you guys, we should be living this life together. We should be worshiping together. We should be walking through life together. But they were going to church. They were going to the temple complex at the hour of prayer. A very systematic uh, set of rules on when they were supposed to go pray, when they were supposed to do sacrifices, who they were supposed to, to, to give the sacrifices over to, and in what, in what attitude, and, 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 and all these different things. They still observed those things. Because remember, Jesus said He didn't come to, to, uh, to refute the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to give meaning to this senseless um, sense of legalism and, 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 and self-righteousness that people had bought into. He came to fulfill the law through Himself and make, make these sacrifices meaningful and purposeful. Make this prayer time meaningful and purposeful. Now eventually we know that, that we departed from Judaism and Christianity became its own religion. And I, I, I don't know all the history there, but I know around, around the time of about 66 to 70 AD is whenever, whenever the Christians truly were seen as no longer of the Jewish people. They were completely separate. So at this time, we still have two Christians, two believers in Jesus Christ who are walking the Jewish faith. And they're walking it in obedience to what they knew God had instructed them to do. Look there, they're going to the temple complex at the hour of prayer. And what happens next is that we see that, that, that Christianity um, or, or God's, God's ability to work in us is, is oftentimes dependent on our obedience to Him. Um, I don't want to go into this whole hour of power and your best life now kind of stuff, but, but you should look at your life on a regular basis and see if there's any power being lived out in your life. Is there power in your relationships? Is, is there, I preached about that a couple weeks ago. Is there, is there that power that, that God um, has promised that His believers will receive, that Jesus Christ said you will be my witnesses and that you will receive power. Some of us just kind of live pretty weak, normal lives. We, we are caught up in what every other weak and normal person is caught up in and we're not living a life of power. We're not living a life that is significantly different and is impactful in this world for the glory of God. And, and, and we were never ever meant to be that way. From the moment you were saved, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead came to live inside of you. Secondly, there was a man at the gate who was lame from birth. And what I see there is that this appointment of Peter and John, men of power, men who really did believe Jesus was who He said He was, and, and really did believe in the miracles and the power and the teaching of Jesus Christ, men who were willing eventually to give their lives as martyrs for this, for this Jesus who was mocked and hung on a cross in disgrace. 
men of power, walking into the temple complex, and God is about to do something amazing. And He doesn't put a lame man who had had an accident and broke his leg. He doesn't put a lame man who, who had, had, had been disabled um, uh, by malnutrition. He doesn't put, he doesn't put someone who, who, who just recently became disabled. He puts a man in their path to work a miracle in his life who had been lame since birth. That means that, that, that there's no medicine that's going to fix this. There's no surgery that's going to happen. There's no physical therapy that's going to correct something that went wrong. It was wrong from the beginning. He was lame from birth. He was wrong from the beginning. He was deficient in the beginning. He could not do for himself from the very beginning of his life. He has always been dependent on the mercy and grace of someone else. Does that sound like anyone in this room? It should sound like every single one of us if we're honest about who we are. From the moment we were born, our entire existence has been dependent on the mercy and the grace of God. The air we breathe is a gift that we take for granted. There, there's, there's no self-help, there's no 12-step, there's no, there's no principles for a, a better life. There's, there's none of this stuff that we could, we could employ or, or implement in and of ourselves that was going to help us. Just like there was nothing this man could do to change his condition. He was dependent on someone else. You are dependent on someone else to be healed. To be raised up from the circumstances that you were born into. Every single one of us were born into the circumstances of brokenness and sin and helplessness from a spiritual standpoint. And the way God arranges it is that no one but God Himself will get credit for what is about to happen in this man's life. We'll see that next week. I'll give you a little preview. After this happens, uh, spoiler alert, the man is healed and he starts to, to, to kind of get up and praise and shout. And he's literally clinging to Peter and to John. And they enter into Solomon's colonnade. And, 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 and all the people are so astonished. And they come and they're just like staring at this guy like, what in the world has happened? What has Peter and John done to this man? He's been lame since birth. And Peter responds, why are you looking at us? Why are you amazed as if we did this? See, because they refused to get the credit for what God alone was doing. Beware of a preacher or an evangelist who takes credit for your salvation. Beware of a church who is so concerned with the numbers of, of, of conversions and baptisms that it's almost like they're not, they're not successful unless, unless they can raise their numbers. As if, as if they're in control of that. Remember, it is Jesus, the Lord, who is adding to them those who are being saved. All we have to do is what Peter and John did. We have to be obedient in what we've been commanded to do. They were being obedient in what they were being commanded to do. They were going to the temple to pray. And God will put the people in your path for you to pay attention to. And that's exactly what happened. This man was completely dependent 
he was, he was an invalid physically, where we are an invalid spiritually. We cannot do for ourselves what needs to be done to change our lives. Thirdly, it says, when Peter and John were about to enter, enter the temple, the lame man asked for help. There was no reason to believe that this man was asking for a healing. There was no reason for, for us to think that what happens next is what the man was wanting. He had come to grips probably long ago with, with the reality that he was lame. He was always going to be dependent on someone else. He was always going to be insufficient in providing for his needs. He was always going to, to need something from someone else. Always. He couldn't even get to the gate to beg unless somebody carried him there. So there's no reason for us to think that when he calls out to Peter and John, he's asking for a healing. But we see that that is exactly what he's about to get. Look at this. I really like the way Luke records this. He says in verse 4, Peter, along with John, looked at him intently. I want us to pause there. Because what we're seeing in a physical, a, a, a historical account of a physical healing is, is a great illustration of the historical account of your spiritual healing. Peter and John, the, the men who walked in the power of God, the authority of God to affirm the Word of God by doing miraculous and wondrous miracles, look at their subject intently. They don't just, they don't just walk past them. They don't just kind of skip over them. They, they, they don't just, just say, oh, we, you know, we don't really have any money. I'm sorry. They take the time to look at him intently. Now I don't believe that Peter and John could discern his heart. But I want to tell you that whenever Jesus Christ comes into your life and he is convicting you and piercing your heart with the gospel, he's not doing that half-heartedly. He is looking at you intently. He is looking at you in such an intent way that he knows exactly what he's getting himself into. He knows exactly the type of person you are and He knows exactly what kind of sins He's going to have to deal with if you turn to Him. It's foolish for us to say that I have sinned way too much. That God doesn't understand all that I've done. No, He looks at you intently. He knows everything. And when we are honest about who we are, what we've done, where we've been, who we've been there with, and how many times it's happened, I know that for myself, I know that I'm incredibly unworthy of the Master and the Holy Sovereign God looking at me intently and saying, I love you. And you can be forgiven. And you can be redeemed. And I can make your life something meaningful. I can put power in your life. I can fix you from the very foundation up. 
And that's exactly what he does. So Peter and John looked at him intently. Jesus looks at us intently. He evaluates the situation. There's not a single thing that he is surprised by. And he jumps headfirst into our lives, knowing that it's messy, knowing that it's broken, knowing that it's going to take a lifetime of sanctification and working out our salvation to finally become who he wants us to be in his identity. He knows all that, and yet he loves us still, and, and, and he refuses to back off. Guys, there's a reason right there to worship that he never lets go. Oh no. If Jamin was in here, he'd sing it for you. Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storms. Oh no, you never let go through every height and every low. Oh no, you never let go. Lord, you never let go of me even though you know everything about me. Worship Jesus for being the friend that sticks closer than a brother who will never forsake you even though He has looked at you intently. My goodness. Next, Peter says, look at us. I don't really know what he meant by that. Maybe he's just getting the guy's attention or maybe because he knew the guy was asking for money. He was like, look at us. We've been following around this carpenter from, from Nazareth for the last three years. He just was hung on a cross. We haven't held steady jobs the entire time. We, we haven't known where our next meal is going to come from. And now he's gone and we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing next. Some amazing things are happening, but I'll tell you, we don't have silver or gold, but we do have something. We do have something. You know, this right here should abolish the prosperity gospel. This passage of scripture that says that if you have faith and if you're asking, you'll receive. And, and if you just name and, and claim whatever it is that you want in this life, then you're going to get it. No, God gives us what we need, not what we want. Because often what we need has nothing to do with what we want. This man thought he needed, he wanted some silver or some gold. He wanted to eat that day. He wanted to be able to, 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 be able to, to, to know that he was financially taken care of, that he was going to have what he needed physically. And Peter and John probably say the most discouraging thing you can say to someone who's begging. I don't have any money. I have no money. But then look at what he says. But what I have, what did, what did he have? What did he receive? What is it that we're lacking? But you will receive power. They had received power. And just like I talked about the lights, there's power going to these lights above my head, but they're not on. It's not being used. You have power flowing into your life, but you have it turned off. You're not using it, or else your lives would look completely different. My life would look completely different if we were fully accessing the power God has given us through the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, 
I'm willing to give you. And you know what I have? I have power. So why don't you get up and start walking? Because that's what you really need. You don't need food for a day. You need food for life. You don't need for me to feel sorry for you and to give you a temporary fix. You need the power that I have living in my life to come and live in your life so that you can be changed from the very foundation up. And that's exactly what happened. We see that when he says, What I have... The power I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. See, it's not Peter's power. It's not John's power. It's not your power. It's the power that we receive through Jesus Christ. And it's a promise that every single one of us is given at the moment of salvation. You will receive Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we don't have to wait around for some mysterious baptism of the Holy Spirit that we never know when it's going to happen. You are fully filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit the moment you believe, you repent, and follow Jesus. It's a done deal. Now do I, do I believe that there are certain times where, where God is more present and more manifest in your life given certain circumstances and situations to where you seem to have a little more power when you need it than others? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that does not mean that you are deficient of the power in your life at any point. He is sufficient for all of your needs in every moment of your life. Look at this. Verse 7, look at this. Peter doesn't just say, and this is a perfect picture of what Christ has done in your life. Listen to this. Get this. Because this has implications for you, you as ministers, for the way you interact with other people as you're sharing the gospel. As you're bringing the power that God has given you into other people's lives. Peter says, get up and walk. And then what does verse 7 say he does? He reaches down. He touches the man where he is. And he helps him up. He doesn't just say, Oh, God bless you. And if you just accept Jesus as your Savior, everything's going to be okay. Good luck. No. He speaks powerfully into his life and then he stands there in the circumstance, reaches down, grabs the man's hand and helps him up to his feet. And then we see, later on we'll see it next week a lot more, that the man is clinging to Peter. When Jesus comes to you, He reveals His gospel through the preaching of the Word of God. It is preached boldly and in power to tell you that you were born sinners. You were born completely helpless to save yourself. That there is a holy God who doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to hold you accountable. He doesn't want to do that. That's why He sent Jesus into the world to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins you've committed. All those things that you don't like to tell people about. All those things you don't want your parents to know about. All those things you wouldn't ever dare tell me or Brother Ronnie or Curtis or, or anyone else about. All those things that you've kept secret. He came so that you don't have to be held responsible for those things. So that He can come into your life and say, I died on the cross. I paid the price. You don't have to suffer for those sins anymore. 
But what he's going to do, he's not just going to say, you're forgiven, now keep lying there in your weakness. Keep staying in your circumstance. He's going to step down into your life. He's going to take you by the hand and He's going to bring you to a different perspective of the world. The man had never seen the world from a standing position before. He saw everything different. He was empowered now to do for himself what he had never been able to do before. And that was to walk. But it took Peter reaching down into his situation and circumstance and taking him by the hand and pulling him up. Jesus, Jesus, when He comes, He will reach down into your circumstances where you are weak, completely helpless, and He won't just say nice things to make you feel good about being where you are. He refuses to let you stay where you are. He refuses. And the mark of a Christian, the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you can look at their life over time and see that they are no longer where they were before. That their life is different. That they aren't doing the same things with the same people as often as they used to. And earlier I said, Jesus looks at us intently and He knows to get you to where He literally wants you to spend eternity in the perfect image and presence of, of, of Himself. He knows it's going to take an entire lifetime to get you there. And He's okay with that. But what He is not okay with is us being lazy in the process with following Him. And saying it's not really that big of a deal. I'm saved. It doesn't matter. It does matter. He refuses to let you stay where you are. Your life must be changing. And you say, well, I was saved at six or seven. I don't really have any big sins to repent from. No, but I bet you got some right now you can repent of. I bet as you grow older and there becomes, there becomes more of yourself you're aware of, you'll become more aware of the sins that you're living in right now. And, 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 it, and the Holy Spirit, His job is to convict you of those sins, to teach you how to rise above those sins. And that should be happening in your life if you're a Christian. If you truly are saved by Jesus Christ, if it was Him who added you to His church, not something you decided one day you were going to do because everyone else was doing it. Not because it's something that you just you 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 did because you know your parents wanted you to, and or you or a preacher talked you into it, and you really didn't know what you were doing. But if you are a a person who Jesus called to Himself, He saved by His grace, by His sacrifice, His atonement was applied to you through Him convicting you of your sins and you realizing you were lost and needed a Savior and accepted Him in faith and repentance, then your life should be changing all the time. All the time. Look at this. And I'm almost done. So he jumped up, stood and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them. With them. He went with them. Imagine that. He got saved 
And he went to church with other saved people. He went with them. He attached himself. He, he followed the model of Christians who were more mature in their faith than himself. How many times have I talked about that? Don't get stuck on an island with other Christians who are just like you. They know just about as much of the Bible as you. They pray about as much as you. They live a, a level of holiness about the same as you. And, don't, and you go to them for spiritual guidance. That's, I'm not, that's silly. I was going to say something much more worse. You know, started with a D. But, but that is silly. It's foolish for you to think that, that it's okay as a Christian to not follow in the footsteps of more mature and proven Christians than yourself. You know what I would think would be awesome, guys? If you drive, this is what I think would be absolutely stinking amazing. I think it would be amazing that if on Monday mornings at 5.30, you guys were here. That would be awesome. And you would get to spend time in Bible study and prayer seeing how other men do those things. Men. And being motivated and challenged by being measured against godly men. I would I mean I invite you to come to man church on Monday mornings at 5:30. Please don't miss the opportunity to attach yourself to someone who is more mature and go to the temple complex with them just like this man did. He was raised up out of his circumstance and he went to the temple complex with <coughs> them. He was walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. You know God will put your life on display for the sake of His glory. When, when you get saved and when you become serious about following Jesus, people are going to look at you. I had, a, I had an awesome experience on Facebook the other day. There's this guy that I went to school with named Jimmy Chenault. Okay? Jimmy was kind of a friend of mine in high school. Like I don't like I asked him cuz cuz he was looking on my wall and he chatted me, which I thought was awesome cuz I haven't talked to Jimmy in a really long time. But he he started chatting me on Facebook and he was like, "Hey, how are you doing?" and everything. We were just kind of generally chatting and he said this. He said, "I just checked out your wall. It's really good to see that you're doing okay. That's not what I remember about you." And I was like, oh, what did I do to Jimmy? Because I really couldn't remember. Like, I remember Jimmy, but we weren't real close. And this is what I said. I typed back and I said, I wasn't a jerk to you, was I? Because I was a jerk to a lot of people. And this is what he responded. No, you were never a jerk to me, but last I heard you were a stoner. And I said, yeah, I was. That's exactly, that's me. And I said... But I'm so thankful that that is not my identity now. And he said, yeah, I'm so happy for you too. It's amazing what God will do when He gets a hold of a life. See, when you get saved, and when, or 
saved people, when you get serious about following Jesus, and it starts to cost you your time, it starts to cost you relationships, it starts to cost you some friends, and and it starts to cost you some money, it starts to cost you some other activities that you really like to spend all your time doing, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, isn't that the person who used to be a stoner? Isn't that the person who used to, to, to sleep around with everybody at school? Isn't that the person who, who used to only do this other thing? Look at what they're doing now. That's worth, notice, that's worth noticing. God will put your life on display when you become serious about following Him. I can't tell you how many times people... I was, I, I, I was a joke as a Christian. Well... <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I was a joke as a pretender to be a Christian because I wasn't saved when I was 14. And still, there was a lot in my life from 14 to now that still makes me pretty much a joke in the eyes of God's holiness. But I'm saved. But before then, I claimed to be a Christian. I went to church. I I said all the right things. And I, I, I went to youth group. And I went to church camps. And I even preached in church. Big church to adults. I wore a white blazer. With a blue shirt and a yellow tie. And I did more walking back. It's a miracle that I'm able to stand right here and preach to you. Because back then, 15 years, 15, 16 years ago, when I was preaching at 13, 14 years old, I couldn't stand still for nothing. Because I had nothing to say. And I thought the more I moved around and the louder I yelled, the more it would be okay. And people would really think that I knew what I was talking about. But I was a joke. I was a pretender. But whenever I truly got serious about following Jesus, and I started to attach myself to other Christians who could model for me patterns of behavior that were glorifying to Christ. You know what people started to say? I thought you were a stoner. You're just not very much fun anymore, are you? Something's different about you. My life was on display, and that held a lot of responsibility, and I didn't always live up to that responsibility very well. But the point is, is that when God works a miracle in your life, people will notice. Is anybody noticing what God is doing in your life? Is anybody noticing what God is doing in your life? And if not, ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. Why why does nobody ask me to pray for them? Why 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 is it that that no Here's, here's something that I noticed working in different factories as a young man and, and being very bold about my faith. No one cussed around me. And if they did, they apologized. It made me feel kind of ashamed because I knew how, how sinful I still was that somebody else would look at me because I professed Christ so, so openly that they would be embarrassed to cuss in front of me. Are people okay with sinning around you openly? Or do they or do they know that you live by a higher standard and you're just not going to be around that? Do people respect you because you live a godly life? Or do people expect you to live exactly the way they do because that's what you do? Is your life on display? Well, let me put it this way. Your life is on display. But are people amazed and astonished by what God is doing in your life? Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you and I praise you, God, and I thank you for these students. I thank you for their attention, and I pray, Lord, that, that you have given them something to wrestle with today. That, God, you have stepped into their lives, and I, I know most of them, if not all of them, would claim to be Christians tonight, and I don't know their hearts, Lord. I, I don't even really see the, 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 the total um, impact that their life plays in this world, but, God, I know that, that, that we... we Myself included, God, we don't live in your power like we should. God, we don't live as boldly as we should. Lord, the world should be embarrassed to sin around us. That, that we should make people feel uncomfortable remaining in their sin because of the level of holiness that, that we live. Lord, I pray that you would convict us in the areas where we're blind to our own sin, our own laziness, our own apathy towards the lost. God, I pray that you would, you would reach down and save people from themselves, from the sins that they have, have attached themselves to. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to, to ministry opportunities. God, I pray that you would be glorified in your people and that your people would not think that it's all about them, God, that we would completely surrender ourselves to your Lordship, Father. I pray this for these students. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them um, as they go into their schools for the rest of this week. I pray that you would protect them. Keep them safe. Keep them healthy, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would keep them focused on what you would have them to do, what you want to do through their lives. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.